So, to the topic for today. Uh, normally, I have like a passage I, I kind of direct you to turn to, and we kind of work through that. Uh, today's a little different. It's going to be a little more topical in nature, uh, which I will just tell you straight out of the gate is not, not my style. Right? <laughs> I've struggled all week because like, I need structure. I need like a text with an argument that I can follow and try to pull out. Uh, and this week's been a little bit different, but I think it's, uh, I think it's an important topic. And <clears throat> excuse me. So we're going to bounce around a little bit this morning. Uh, the passages I reference will be on the screen, or you can write them down uh, if you want to look at them later. Uh, but just to kind of reorient you before we jump in, we are in a series on uh, the family, we're talking about um, different things related to families. We, we started kind of more broad and specific, just general things. And the last Last week, this week, and the next week, we're just looking at some really specific things that families uh, will have to navigate at some point. And so our hope is that we're just giving you some tools, uh, some biblical truth as you have these conversations in your home. Because you will inevitably have to have these conversations uh, in your home. And so um, of those things, right, last week we talked about some uh, mental health anxiety, depression sort of things. Uh, next week, we've got another uh, important topic, maybe a little more even polarizing than anything else to this point. Spoiler alert. Um, but this week, um, I, I think this week's topic might be the most significant for the culture that we live in today. Okay, and uh, to kind of get us in moving in that direction, let me read this. Uh, this is a quote from uh, an author, counselor, professor uh, named Ed Welch. He has a He's a biblical counselor, but he also has a Ph.D. in, let me get this word right, neuropsychology. I'm assuming that means he's smart. Okay? Here's what, here's what he wrote uh, in, a, in a book about sort of the brain and disorders and, and this sort of stuff. He says, homosexuality will confront the church throughout this generation. Political sanctions will be imposed on institutions that refuse to hire homosexuals. Homosexuals will probably have their uh, place at the table with civil recognition of same-sex marriages. Under the heading of pluralism, all forms of sexual expression will be considered equally valid. Church leaders will continue to be outed. More denominations will revise their exegesis of biblical passages to allow for homosexual relationships and people otherwise, who otherwise take the Bible seriously will leave churches that call homosexuality sin. At no time has the church so routinely been denounced as evil for upholding what appear to be biblical principles. And he goes on and says, Clearly the nature of the topic demands humility and careful thought. Now here's what's crazy about that. That book was written in 1998. 25 years ago, just 25 years ago. And man, we've seen, I mean, it's prophetic, right? We've seen all of that come to fruition. Right? Just, just taking his argument, we've seen uh, religious organizations, institutions, schools are uh, under like constant scrutiny for uh, the, the handling and hiring of uh, you know, those who, who would identify as part of the LGBT community. Uh, we know that just, a few years ago, 2015, uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling that, in which they said states have to um, 
recognize and, and validate and license same-sex marriages. Right, the, the sort of the cultural discourse on these sort of issues has progressed beyond just homosexuality. Uh, the, 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 the very acronym itself, right? There's LGBTQ plus at this point. So, this, so clearly that conversation is, has gone beyond just homosexuality. Right? Multiple Christian denominations, multiple Christian denominations are being split and fractured on the basis of whether or not uh, ordained ministers and, and leaders recognize homosexuality, LGBTQ issues as, as valid and permissible. Okay, and then, and to kind of bring it back home, we're talking about raising the next generation, teaching and training the next generation. Generation Z, which is basically the generation younger than me. I'm a millennial. Uh, that probably, maybe that puts a bad taste in your mouth. That's what millennials are known for. Uh, but the, the generation after me, so it'd be like, I don't know exactly where that, that age range is, but younger than me. Gen Z is the most unchurched generation in history. And according to multiple studies, one of the largest deterrents to their involvement in the church is the church's stance on issues related to LGBTQ+. Right? So if we're going to be faithful to raise the next generation in the fear and admonition or uh, instruction of the Lord, as, as Ephesians tells us to, like we've, we're raising them in this cultural climate. Like we cannot ignore this issue. Right? We can't just like, like the horses in the Preakness yesterday, we can't just put on blinders and pretend like it's not out there and it doesn't exist. We can't just put on earmuffs and be like, I can't, nope, nope, not dealing with it. Right? We don't get to do that because this is, this is the society, the culture we're raising our children and our grandchildren in. And so we've, we've got to know how do we talk about it? How do we navigate it? How do we handle it? How do we respond to it? Uh, and so man, it's, it's our job to equip them to understand the truth of who God is, who we are, and how we are to live faithfully in light of God's truth. So that's kind of the, what we're doing this morning. Right? We're just going to talk about sort of sexual identity, sexuality, uh, really through kind of a, a mostly a three-part lens um, that we can kind of trace this through, through Scripture. Creation, redemption, I'm sorry, creation, the fall, and redemption. Okay, what I mean by that is we're going to look at creation, God's design, specifically as it relates to sex, sexuality. We're going to look at the fall and the effects of the fall on uh, all of creation, but specifically when it comes to right, sexual identity, sexuality, and then uh, redemption, how God redeems and restores uh, that which the fall has distorted. Okay, so... With that said, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin with creation design. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is kind of where we see God creating humanity, right? Brings them into existence, uh, creates them out of the, out of the dirt of the ground. Uh, and here's what it says. It says, so God created man in his own image. Right? In the image of God, he created him. And then we've got this distinction, male and female, he created them. Okay, so the first thing we see, God's creation of humanity, is one that God created us 
male and female. Right? And that is rooted in biology. Okay, we, we, don't, have to, we don't have to get too uh, uh, crass. Like men and women are different. Okay, obviously different. Right? And this is by God's design. It's rooted in, in biology that God created us male and female. Right? Our bodies work the way they work, and they work differently because male and female are different biologically. Okay? And so the reason this is important is because from creation, gender is assigned, not chosen. Right? When God creates humanity, creates man and woman in his image, in his likeness, He creates them male and female, and that is assigned to them. Uh, It's not up for choice or debate. From the beginning, that's the way it was. Okay? And God's creation, his design for humanity is good. This is the the reoccurring uh, sort of uh, statement over and over again in God's creation narrative. Genesis 1 and 2 is that everything God creates and the way he creates it is good. It is good. It is right. Right, which means we should live in accordance with his design. One, because he's the creator and we're the creature and we submit to him. Right, that's, that's what we're called to do. But also, we should live in accordance with his design because his design is for our good. Right, it is for our good. It is for human flourishing, to submit to God's designed for everything, but especially this area when it comes to sexual identity and sexuality. Okay, but God goes on and he has more to say in the next verse, Genesis 1, 28. It says, and God blessed them, male and female, man and, man and woman, and God said to them, let me catch this, first recorded words to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. We're all adults here, okay? God's first recorded words to humanity was to have sex and have children, right? That's his first word to his, the man and woman created in his, his image, right? Sex and sexuality were God's idea, not man's idea. This predates the fall. This predates sin. This is God's design, right? Sex and sexuality, his idea. It's not like, it's not like God created man and then we kind of figured this thing out on our own and he's like, oh, well, I guess if you have to. Right? This is his idea. Right? And so this, this like dismisses the, the, the cultural narrative, the false narrative is that God is somehow like this uh, sort of sexually repressive killjoy. Right? That he, he's kind of restricted this to where it's only... Like, it's not meant for joy. It's not meant to be good, right? He's, he's restricting or restraining. And what we see from here is he, he created our bodies to function the way that they do on purpose, right? This is not an accident. It's, listen, it's not coincidence that the, the command to be fruitful and multiply is also one that's enjoyable. That's not an accident. Okay, sex, sexuality are God's gift to his people. But because it's his gift given to us, because he created it, 
he also has the right to say these are the boundaries in which this is to be expressed and experienced. Right? He holds that right as the creator. Right? This functions like he lays out the playing field for this, which is what he does in Genesis 2, verse 24. If you're, I don't know if you're turned there, but you can skip over the next chapter. Genesis 2, 24. Here's the context where this is to play out. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, so we're all on the same page. Here's God's good design for sex, sexuality. I'm going to read what I wrote verbatim. God's good design. One biological man, one biological woman, committed exclusively to one another in the context of a heterosexual marriage. That is God's good design for sex and sexuality to be expressed and experienced. That means anything that falls outside of that, heterosexual, homosexual, right, is a break in God's good design. It's a, it's a departure from what God has intended for his creation. And so, and when we pursue sex and sexuality within those boundaries that he's created, it is a good gift to be enjoyed. It's a good gift from God to his people to be enjoyed for the purpose of both procreation and pleasure. It's his. It's his gift to us. But to pursue sex and sexuality outside of the boundaries that God has created for, for his people, for his creation, when we pursue it, that's when things go wrong really quickly. And, and to give you an illustration, think of your homes. I don't know if you've got a fireplace in your home. When that fire is in the fireplace, it is awesome. It keeps the house warm. You know, if you've got like an old school home, you can even like cook food on it. Fire in the fireplace is awesome. You take that fire outside of the fireplace, then there's real big problems in your home. And this is what it is with sex, sexuality. So, that brings us to the fall. So we started with creation, God's good design for sexuality. Here's the fall. Okay, we're not going to read it all. We did this just a few weeks ago. Um, Genesis 3, if we were to go read through it, here's what you would see. Many of you already know this. Is that Adam and Eve, uh, the serpent slithers in, begins to speak lies into uh, Adam and Eve, and they believe the lies of the serpent. And what they do is they... They, they trust their own eyes. They trust their own desires over and above what God has commanded. They trust themselves over God. Right? They disobey his commands. They uh, rebel against his authority. And they eat the, the fruit of this tree that they were commanded not to eat from. Right? And their sin had consequences for them, like as individuals, personally, Right, they're cut off from the garden, right, sent out of the garden pretty immediately, separated from God. And then ultimately they, were, uh, they, would, they would die, which is not originally part of God's plan. They would die as a consequence of their sin and rebellion. And so their, their sin had consequences for them personally, but it also had consequences for man, all of creation. Right? All of creation. Right? And that includes the human experience of sex and sexuality. From Genesis 3 on, 
Humanity would pursue this thing that was supposed to be God's good gift to his people. Humanity pursues it in ways that are uh, corrupt and distorted. Because after Genesis 3, the human heart is now corrupt and distorted by the effects of sin. The, the, reason, the reason sexuality is now pursued in ways that are contrary to God's good design is because our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are wicked and evil and prone to sin. All of us. And, and, and to that point, sort of sinful compulsions in, in the area of sex and sexuality, it's, it's not just confined to issues that we would say fit under sort of the LGBT banner, right? This is 1 Corinthians, right? Paul, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a church like ours that was sort of immersed in a uh, sexual, sexually deviant, uh, over-sexualized culture, right? There, it, and it's not even just the, the culture around the church in Corinth. Some of this stuff was going on in the church of Corinth. Right? There's at one point where Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says like, hey, it's actually reported there's the kind of sexual immorality going on amongst you that even unbelievers and pagans would look at and say, that's gross. And so Paul writes this word to the church in Corinth. He says this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All right, now that's a big deal. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And then he goes on at the end of verse 10 to say, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. So this is bigger than just... LGBTQ, homosexuality, gender, this is, this is far more expansive than that. We're talking, about, we're talking about a departure from God's design for sex and sexuality. We're talking about adultery. We're talking about uh, sexual abuse, pornography, pedophilia. I mean, we could take that conversation a million different ways. Anything that departs from God's design for sex and sexuality, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's homosexual, any departure from God's good design is condemnable. It's condemnable because it, it departs from God's word, his command for human beings created in his image. But what makes this topic, I think, so challenging, and so like hard to navigate and handle, like where do we even start, is because sex and sexuality has become so like inextricably linked to identity in the world that we live in. Right, here's what uh, Carl Truman, uh, he wrote a book called Strange New World. If you like to read, I would commend it to you. If you want to know, like, how did we get where we are in this sort of sexual revolution we're in, I would, I would highly recommend Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. Uh, it is not an easy read. Like, it's, he's, I, I thought I was intelligent, and then I read it, and I'm like, this guy is on another plane. Okay, but here's what he says. Sexual desire has emerged in the last 100 years as a primary category for understanding our identity. 
It says, in, in biblical times or in ancient Greece, sex was regarded as something that human beings did. Today, it is considered to be something vital to who human beings are. That's the world that we live in. Right? Our society's view is, is not that sex and sexuality is just something that uh, I do or something I choose or something that I take part in or something that I engage in. Our culture, our society's view, 21st century American culture, our society's view is that uh, sexual, sort of sex and sexuality is, is who I am. It's central to my identity. And what makes that challenging then, what makes that challenging is that to reject someone's view of sex or sexuality, if it's so linked to their identity, what happens then is all of a sudden it's not like we're just rejecting their, their choice. It's all of a sudden we're rejecting them as a person. To say, I disagree with your view of sex, sexuality. I think it's contrary to what God has for his creation. It's not just to reject their decision. It's to reject them as a human being. That's what makes this so, so challenging. Right? And, and to press to press this even further, okay? In sp specifically, when we talk about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, those sorts of things, right? there are some who, who would contend that uh, same-sex attraction is kind of born out of sort of our genetic code, our biological makeup, like we're, we're like genetically predisposed for whatever reason to be attracted to the same sex, Okay, so that's one school of thought. And there's another school of thought that would say, well, it's actually, it's actually a combination of our experiences that would make us sort of predisposed to be uh, attracted to someone of the same sex. It, it may be some past traumatic experience that we've had. Uh, it may be just kind of sort of the, the nurture, how we were raised, how we were brought up, what our, our experiences are. Okay, now, are, are either one of these fields of thought, study, research, right? Be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But the reason I bring it up is because I don't think it matters whether either one of them are right. right? Because whether it's a, 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 a biological thing or a psychological thing, Neither of those, neither biological factors or, or psychological factors, take precedence over God's word, God's revealed will for his creation. And let me give you an illustration. Let's say I, uh, let's say that, that I were biologically or psychologically um, predisposed towards like, anger and aggression. Right? Maybe for whatever reason, maybe I had some sort of, because, uh, because I'm a male, maybe I've just got something innate in me that's like just aggressive, I'm more prone to be angry, it's part of my genetic code. Or maybe I was raised in, uh, in a home where anger and aggression were just on display all the time. Let, let's say that were true, biological, psychological, maybe both, combination of both. I'm predisposed towards anger and aggression. If my family came in here this morning with black eyes and bruises from my hands, it would be reprehensible for me to look at you and say, well, listen, 
It's just who I am. Right? I'm predisposed towards this. I'm, I'm a man. I'm aggressive naturally. Right? I, I was raised in a, in a home where this was on display. It's part of who I am. And so if you don't allow me to live according with who I am, then you're suppressing my rights. Right? That's absurd. That's absurd. And yet this is, like, this is kind of the argument. That because it's my biological makeup or, or because it's a psychological thing that I am free, should be free to live according to, to this. Right? Even if, and I'm not saying there is or there isn't because I don't know. Even if there was some sort of biological, psychological causation resulting from the fall, that does not mean there's justification for living in direct disobedience to God's design. Right? Because God has put parameters, boundaries in place for these things to be experienced. So, so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the problem is not biological, it's not psychological. At the end of the day, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And whether or not our hearts will live in submission to God's good design for his creation. All right, and, and the only true help and the only true hope for sinful, wicked, depraved human hearts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Here's, that brings us to redemption. Right? With creation, fall, here's, here's redemption. If you go back to that passage we looked at earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to read it all, but I'm going to get into verse 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, he goes on, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, um, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Like, do you hear what Paul is saying here? To the church in Corinth. Right, the implication in Paul's words, such were some of you. The implication is that your identity is not inevitable. It's your identity. It's not an inescapable reality that, that you are enslaved to. Because right, what Paul says here is, though you were sexually immoral, though you were adulterers, though you were homosexuals, though you were uh, greedy, though you were drunkards, that's not who you are anymore. How? He goes on, verse 11. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that, that God, the God who we sin against, rebel against, uh, who, who's, we've taken his good design for sex and sexuality and we've rejected it both Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, that God that we've rejected, rebelled against, willingly sent his own son to the cross where he took on all of, like every ounce of God's wrath poured out towards 
sexual sin, both heterosexual, homosexual. He took like every sinful thought, every sinful desire, every sinful behavior. He took it on himself and he died and he rose again to conquer sin. But not only to conquer sin, but so that we might be fully and freely forgiven for every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful action, every sinful desire. And he, he not only forgives us of those things, but it's by his death, burial, resurrection, trusting in that, believing in that, it reorders our worship, it reorders our priorities, and it gives us the actual power to walk in freedom, right? to flee from the sin, right? to walk in a manner, what, what Paul would say elsewhere, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, consistent with God's good design for his creation. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, can transform the human heart. Right? There, listen, there is no legislation that will, tra- that will change the human heart. Right? There, is no, there is no Supreme Court decision that can change the human heart. Right? There, there is no political party or belief system that can transform the human heart. Uh, there is no boycott or ban that can transform the human heart. We can do those things till we're blue in the face. And I'm not even saying that we shouldn't do some of those things. Right? Some of those things are good and right and necessary at any given moment. But what I'm saying is they are insufficient to transform the human heart. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that because it, it, re, it, it reprioritizes things for us. Right? It, it reorders our worship to where we're no longer worshiping self. We're worshiping the God who loves us, who, who sent his son to forgive us. He is Lord. And if he is Lord, that, that has some implications for our lives. Right? If Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, like we don't get to do just whatever we want to do. Right? We, we, we don't get to plot our own course if Jesus really is Lord. Right? The, the gospel comes with great reward. The forgiveness of sin, the promise of eternal life, the power to flee and resist and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the power to fight temptation. Those are good gifts that the gospel gives, the good rewards. But, but listen, living in in accordance with the gospel, living in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord, it, it does come with a cost. It, it means that we must strive and fight to reject, to put to death our previous identity as slaves to sin. Right? We put to death the, the parts of our lives that are inconsistent with what God has called us to. That's what we're Take up your cross daily is what Jesus is. It means every day is a decision. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die to what, what maybe my own desires would have me to do, what feels most pleasurable and what's most, what feels most right to the, I'm gonna, today. I'm going to submit those to God's good design for me because he is Lord. He calls the shots. Right? And we, we live out of our new identity. What, what Paul would say in Romans, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. We take God at his word, we believe it, and we submit to it. And that brings us to sort of the end, or at least the end of this section, 1 Corinthians 6. Here's, here's kind of how Paul 
summarizes this argument. Verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin and person, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here's the, the part I want you to see. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, it means we, we're not our own. Right? Christ has redeemed us. He's bought us back from slavery to sin. And that has some implications on how we live. Right? We glorify God in our bodies with our choices even in our desires, by putting them to death whenever they are inconsistent, incompatible with God's good design. In every area, but especially in this area of sex and sexuality. Right? So, here's, I'm going to move to just kind of land the plane here. A couple points of, of application for us to think about and consider as we, as we leave this place. Right? I, I want us to respond like in this tension of, of both conviction and compassion. Okay, what I mean by that is conviction. Uh, we want to be unwavering in our submission to God's word, his good design for sex and sexuality. Conviction. But also respond in compassion. Right? Love for other human beings created in God's image that have unique sins and struggles because we all have unique sins and struggles. Conviction, compassion. Right, here's, I kind of got three points. They're like, they, they don't flow, so they're not very Baptist-y, but they're just three things I want you to actually see, right? Here's the first one. This is a personal issue, not a political issue. Right, it's easy in the world we live in, the media and stuff we watch, where it just makes everything... Uh, everything LGBTQ is on this side of the aisle. Everything anti-LGBTQ is on this side of the aisle. And what I want us to see is like, man, we're, we're not called to sort of stoop down to that. This is a personal issue, not a, not a political issue. We are called to something higher. Right? We're not talking about ethereal concepts and ideologies. We're talking about real people created in the image of God that like the rest of us have real sin and real struggles, even if those sin and struggles look different than our own. And so it, it means something for how we respond. Right there, listen, there may be people in this room right now that have some of these struggles. If not people in this room, there's certainly people related to or friends with people in this room that experience these sort of struggles. So this is not just some ethereal concept. It means we should talk differently about it. Right? The, the way we talk, the language we use, our attitude towards those struggling with these things, it matters. Right? Engaging with compassion matters. These are real men, real women, with real sin and real struggles, just like you. Right, here's the second thing. We do not choose our temptations, but we 
always choose our reaction. Here's what James says. James 1 verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That means that, that each of us, like we have unique temptations that are, that are like they're unique to us. Right? There, there's no universal temptation that everyone experiences. Maybe pride, but like we have unique temptations, unique desires, unique like sinful compulsions. We're all tempted in various ways. Lured and enticed is what James says by our, by our own. And I mean these these it may be lust, it may be pornography, it may be uh, being sexually active before marriage, it may be uh, pursuing an affair or an adulterous relationship, uh, and it may be same-sex attraction. Right? And so while we while we do not choose the ways in which we are tempted, right, we always choose our reaction and our response to those temptations. Right? And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, the only appropriate response when it comes to temptations in this, this realm of sexual immorality, whether heterosexual or homosexual, the only appropriate response is to flee, to resist. So I would encourage you this morning. Because I, if we're honest, I think we all probably uh, have or either in the past or maybe even currently have, have had some sort of brokenness in the area of sex and sexuality. I would encourage you to consider this morning how, when, and what it looks like for you to continue fleeing or maybe begin fleeing for the first time sexual temptations. Right? Flee from it, run away from it, make a constant, like a concentrated effort to put it to death. What does that look like for you this morning? Okay, and then here's the third thing. Sin is never safe. I want to make that clear, right? Sin is never safe. But the church should be a safe place for struggling sinners. Right? Sin is never safe. You will not come to a, a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church and have someone, like, just sort of help usher you deeper into sin. Sin is never safe. But the church should be a safe place for those who are struggling in sin, whatever that sin looks like. What I mean by that is, it's, listen, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Right? If, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in, in any capacity in the areas of sex, sexuality, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, would you be so bold as to invite someone into that struggle this morning? And I don't want to like I don't want to paint a false picture. I'm not saying that just by like confessing that to someone, like a trusted friend, a pastor. I'm not saying that that opening your life up to someone will fix it immediately. I'm pretty sure it won't actually. But at least, here's what I do know. You are much more likely to experience victory if you're willing to get help, accountability, 
encouragement, support from others that are, that are here to walk alongside, you're much rather likely, much more likely to experience victory surrounded by others than just kind of white-knuckling it and trying to fix it yourself. Right? The sin is never safe, but the church should be a safe place for struggling sinners. Here's what, I'm going to end kind of with this quote. This is what uh, Tim Keller uh, is kind of referenced as saying. It was a Tim Keller quote, Tim Keller quote that I read in another book. Um, but here's, I love this. Right? He's just a, he's kind of like a Christian Jedi. He actually just passed away on Friday. Um, here's what he says. Churches should look more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like the waiting room for a job interview. That's what the church should be. Right? The, the waiting room for a job interview, that's where you're like, you're putting on your best face, everything, like, I got it together. I want everybody to know how awesome and put together I am. And yet when you go into a doctor's office, I think you kind of walk in just assuming like these people all have something wrong with them. In fact, I'm not going to sit too close because I don't want to get it on me, right? Like you walk into a, church, or to a, a doctor's office knowing that the other people are, are sick and broken in some capacity. That's what the church should be. We're all broken in some capacity. Right? And, and, and my hope is may this be a place May this be a place where we assume that we all have some sort of sin, sickness, and that we, because of that, we patiently, lovingly, compassionately, consistently point one another toward the only one who can give hope and healing. Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this is a heavy subject. Um, or at least I think it should be heavy. I, my, hope is that there's, my hope is that there's not one here this morning that would just flippantly sort of cast this off and some sort of maybe derogatory thought or comment. This is the, this is the world that we live in. And you have called us not to be of the world, our lives should not resemble the world, but you have called us into the world as lights and as, uh, or as influences. And so, Father, I pray that as we even talk about something as, as heavy as sex and sexuality, I, I pray that you would help us to see, Lord, that this is not something that we should shrink back from, but something that we should engage with, with conviction not backing away from what we know to be true but also with compassion moving towards those who are caught in sin and struggle so Father I, I pray this morning if there's if there's some here this morning that, that maybe are, are caught up in their own sort of sexual sin and struggle whether that be heterosexual sinful desires, homosexual sinful desires. I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would begin a work of healing like in this moment, like now. Or that you would, uh, Lord, compel them, compel them to see that, 
that your, your design is good? Would they begin to see that? Would you open their hearts and minds to see that and, and believe that? Would you surround them with good, godly, trusted friends and influences who would speak truth and love into their lives to help and encourage and support? Father, would you make this place, this church, this community, this, uh, this, this family, would you make us into a people where uh, we, we would never condone sin, but we would be a safe place for those who are struggling with their own sinful compulsions. And Father, in all of that, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness in sending Jesus to the cross to absorb every ounce of wrath toward our sinful desires, our sinful deeds and actions and behaviors and responses would you we thank you for that if there's one here in this room this morning that's that's never received your grace and mercy and forgiveness they've never had their their sins covered or would you move them to that this morning would they respond in faith repentance turning from sin in faith trusting that that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was sufficient to pay the penalty for sin. And then would you, Lord, empower them by your Spirit to walk in increasing freedom. Like sanctification doesn't happen overnight, but, but Lord, we, we trust when you say that you are faithful uh, to, to finish the work that you started. You're faithful to complete it. We trust that you would do that. So, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.